shit. Oh, shit. I'm rolling. Rolling, rolling. Oh, God. Are we going to, like, do a little warm-up now? A little warm-up banter? We're warming up right now. I feel like we've been. See, we need to let's just, like, keep it running. We're having all our inane conversations <laughs> before we start recording. This shit's gold. Yeah, we, we keep always having inane conversation at all times. Well, maybe I could sing a little more of my song. What song? I love Dick Prol. So put another boss in the gulag, baby. I love Dick Prol. So why don't you take your time and rev with me? Wow. Do you like it? Catchy, <laughs> for sure. There are a lot of verses. Uh, what, maybe you should think about putting this up somewhere. <gasps> maybe I will. Maybe put it up for the Patreons to see. Oh, uh, don't make me sing. Which does bring us to say, before we begin, if you love our podcast and you like the content you're about to hear... Be sure to subscribe on fans.fm slash everybody loves communism or patreon.com slash everybody loves communism to support the show and hear extra content such as our theories on cult- on cultural analysis called cultural Marxism. Most recent or most recent episode of that series had the final girls podcast. That's right. Good job, man. Thank you. And there'll be there'll be more where that came from, probably. Yeah, absolutely. But be sure to stay tuned. And if you subscribe and you subscribe to the Patreon and Fans.fm, there will be more where that came from. There definitely will be. In addition to the stuff that you can already unlock only by giving us money. Yes. So, all right, we're doing the show. That was a really are. good plug up top there. Oh, thank you. I always forget to do them. Well, are you going to start the show, Jamie? Yeah, no. Okay, I'm going to say the thing now. Yeah. I mean, if you're just joining us, <laughs> that doesn't work on a podcast. <laughs> like, the podcast, like, you listen to it when you want to. It's not like a fucking radio show. It'd be cool if, it, if this was on the radio, though. I mean, yeah, obviously. I think it would be a sign that good things were happening in the world. Head up our friends out there, friends of the show, WBAI. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Hey, hey. Good idea, man. You're full of them today. Thank you. Maybe after the rev, they'll give NPR to Daniel Denver. (laughs) I feel like he would be like a nice, soothing transition from the lib NPR to the socialist one. Like people might not even notice. Right. Or also friends of the show, the Revolution Per Minute Squad. That too. Nice folks, nice voices. Oh, is it is it doing the thing again where it gets quiet? I feel like it's fine. Press pause. Uh, all right. We're gonna keep it keep it rolling. Maybe turn. Okay, now it looks big again. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, I think we just need to talk louder. All right. Great. Fucking great. Um, where was I? I don't know. Start the show. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm a little demoralized. I made the mistake of trying to sign up for healthcare. Oh man! Yesterday, silly me. <laughs> I know, and you know, I always put stuff off to the last minute. Right. But like, they were really in my face. Like the part of the program where they tell you that you need to sign up to healthcare is very well funded. Like it's in your face. They were, they're texting me. I'm like, how'd you get this number? <laughs> so finally I'm like, fucking fine. Let's see. Let's see what they have for me. You're like, I thought this was a, this was a private line. Why are they, why is the government <laughs> contacting this? This is a concerning for my own safety. 
yeah, like I'm in the middle of dinner. Leave me alone. So fucking I went online because, you know, I've got this really expensive Cobra right now. And I was like, maybe I can save some money. My Cobra is going to run out eventually. Let's see what they got for me. Right. And it's not good. (laughs) Spoiler alert. It is not good. Are you saying that there's a problem with our wonderfully funded healthcare system that is by market solutions? I think, you know, listen, the market is a solution of all problems, Jamie. The market's. The market works. This is very triggering for me. Because, like, okay, I spent all day. We're supposed to fucking record on Wednesday. And then I spent all day trying to figure out, trying to parse this fucking health plan bullshit. And even with the subsidy that it offered me, everything I saw that was cheaper than Cobra was just, like, utter dog shit. Just utter fucking dog shit. And it's also really funny because when you're trying to see what it covers... Or, or like how much money they'll give you for various things. Uh, most of the plans, like you click on the little, uh, the little question mark, and it says consult the manual or what? the brochure or or whatever. It's what like brochure. It's like we're not going to tell you. And I'm like, like there's not even a link. Like it's like you just have to look this up for yourself somehow. So I just I picked one. Basically, I picked. Okay, so most of the options for people with not a lot of money are just like these no name fucking like off brand healthcare that you've never heard of. So like, like not United Healthcare Health- or Kaiser. Like yeah, no, one. it's like Health First, Fidelis, um, all this, all this fucking bullshit. Right. Never heard of them. Yeah. And they are not, uh, they are not insurances that most people take. My doctor certainly doesn't take them. Damn. So I so I was like, all right, the the only one that's cheaper than Cobra for me, that's like a name brand that people have heard of, was the the bronze plan for Blue Cross Blue Shield. Okay. And it was I think three hundred sixty three dollars a month with the subsidy. Mm-hmm. Without the subsidy, it was like six hundred dollars or something insane like that. Damn. And it covers, as far as I can tell. Like it has a high deductible, but after you meet your deductible, it only covers half. So like, I'm just going to keep Cobra for a while. For those listening at home, <laughs> I'm shaking my head right now because it's absurd. SM, SMDH. But like, it's really, it's really on me for just even trying. I don't know. That's fair. I mean, like you, you try to do something given like what was available to you, but it's just the fact of the matter that the healthcare system in this country is broken. Yeah, no shit. This is why we need <laughs> Medicare for all. The richest country in the world. Oh my god. The li- I'm looking at the recording. The lines just went crazy when you said that. <laughs> this I like your Bernie voice. I think you should use it more often. Thank you. So this is why um yeah, someone should do something about that. And this is why we are studying the essential texts so that we can eventually do the thing. We can overthrow capitals, iron rule, and implement a system that works for everyone, even when it's time to get, especially when it's time to get healthcare. That's right. Anyway, welcome to the show. Oh, you did it. You did it. Hello and welcome to Everybody Loves Communism, where the Leftist in Theory, Leftist Theory and History podcast, where we do the reading so you don't have to. My name is Jorge Rocha. I'm Jamie Peck. 
And today we're going to be talking about Chapter 3 of Stain Revolution by Vladimir Lenin. So excited to get back into the text after our long, long detour. I mean, not a detour. It was very necessary to talk about the Paris Commune and learn about it. Our Um, journey. Our journey about through the Paris Commune. Journey through history. Exactly. Um, It was also important to talk about House of Gucci with uh, Gabby and Kitty. Wonderful. It's a... Incredible wreck of a film, and everyone should be checking that out if you subscribe to the Patreon. Ah, good job, man. Thank you. Wow, you're really getting into these plugs, huh? Uh, it's, it's, it's reminding me, Michael Brooks, I learned from the best. You'd think that I would be better at it by now, having watched him do it so many times. But, you know, maybe it doesn't come naturally to everyone. Or, hey, though, he's got, he's got the salesman... <laughs> Salesman Five. He's got the mojo. I am not trying to sell that, sell anything. I'm just caring about the fact that we want to make good content, and so if you want to make good content for our listeners, listeners need to be aware that because this is important labor that we are doing, and also labor that for us it takes a lot of time and effort for us to do things that are you know a bit more, a bit more uh, fun, but also more more content than say just doing the readings of these texts. But also we are people that are. Workers just like yourself in terms of being able to subsist our own living in a society. Yeah, they know. They know why we need the money. We don't have to justify it to them. It's important to state it as well. Yeah. I mean, look, the the sooner this becomes a sustainable project financially, the less likely I am to have to quit and get a real job. So it's true. There you go. I don't know how you do it, man. (laughs) Anyway, um, Let's, let's focus on this chapter. Chapter now, three. Now, the purpose of this chapter is to demonstrate how the experience of the Paris Commune inspired Marx. First, Lenin examines the change in Marx's theory of socialist revolution given the Paris Commune experiment. According to Lenin, Marx refined his theory by making a distinction between bourgeois revolution and proletarian revolution, where the former brings about revolution through bourgeois institutions and the latter brings about revolution through proletarian institutions. We'll go into kind of what that means in terms of, you know, we kind of glancing over, this is just like kind of like a summary before we get into the meat, the, the meat and potatoes of this. Now, however, for proletarian institutions to manifest in society, the existing bourgeois institutions must be abolished. Mm. I have a note written down here saying, could this also be the difference between a political revolution and a social revolution? Yeah, question mark. Very well, could be. Find out. Stay tuned. I mean, basically, when we're talking about bourgeois institutions and proletarian ones, we're talking about boss institutions and worker ones. Is that fair? Fair to say? I'd say that's a good way of kind of just boiling it it. down real, real hard. Yeah. Real hot. Oppressor institutions and oppressed institutions. Yeah, sure. Like a union. Yeah. That's a proletarian institution. It's composed of workers advocating for their interests right whereas um i don't know say fucking congress a a bourgeois parliament a bourgeois legislature something that exists in tandem with the capitalist state the council on foreign relation that's the big time yeah the council they talk get together and talk about stuff but now you and i are not invited to this Mm mm-hmm now, Form versus content. Yep. And, you know, Lenin goes on to address what is to replace the bourgeois state in this chapter. There is a section cautioning viewing democracy as equivalent to parliamentarism, which is the state of democracy under capitalism. That's typically known as like liberal democracy. 
he discusses how proletarian democracy is distinct from bourgeois democracy. Next, Lenin compares how Marx viewed the best path to organize the entirety of society to prepare for a socialist transformation with how anarchists like Proudhon and Bakunin viewed such a path. And Lenin concludes this chapter by stating how the commune as a political entity will be the vehicle for proletarian democracy, or at least how he viewed it in his time. Chapter 3, Part 1. What made the communards attempt heroic? Oh, the communards. We know them. We know who they are now. Yeah, I mean, that's why we did the entire mini-series on the Paris Commune. So now when this we're talking about this, you're like, who the hell is that? Who, what? What are you talking now about? Now we know. And if you haven't listened, be sure to go back to those episodes. It will be very... It will help a lot. Trust us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Lenin begins this chapter by showcasing how, despite initially being against the idea of Paris workers pursuing any revolution, Marx quickly accepted and welcomed the proletarian revolution. Marx viewed the revolution, quote, as a historic experience of enormous importance, as a certain advance of the world proletarian revolution, as a practical step that was more important than hundreds of programs and arguments, unquote. There is a comparison made to how an esteemed Russian Marxist, Georgi Plekhanov, initially supported and later denounced the attempted 1905 Russian Revolution, which Marx did not do with the Paris Commune. Yeah, that's because he was a real one. True. He was a G. Yes, true. The Paris Commune had such a profound influence on Marx and Engels. They made their singular correction to the Communist Manifesto. They believed the program within the manifesto, quote, had in some details become out of date, unquote, and that the revolutionary experience of the Paris Commune proved that, quote, the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. Damn. They were so impressed by it. They did a correction to not just any communist manifesto. The Communist Manifesto. It's true. And the quotes that we just got from are, you know, from, from the Civil War in France, which is what Marx wrote following the Paris Commune, which we will get to in due time. Now, it is very important that th- there was one principle and fundamental lesson of the Paris Commune as being as such of such enormous importance that they introduced an important correction into the Communist Manifesto. This is what Lenin is saying. And it, it is quite important that as a... This correction, Lenin viewed as so important that this was distorted by opportunists and the meaning being so distorted that not even 9 out of 10, but rather not even, not 99 out of 100 people that read the manifesto got it, which is, you know, a big claim to suggest that, no, 99% of people who read the common manifesto do not understand this lesson. Well, what is this lesson? Well, you know, he, he, Lenin claims that the distortion, the vulgar interpretation of Marx's, this Marx, Marxist statement that was just quoted, is that merely what Marx is saying is that it's emphasizing this idea of the slow, progressive development of, of the seizure of power of the state. Lenin says it's actually the exact opposite of what Marx is saying when he, when, when he says that when, with his quote, to go back, that working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. What, they're, what Lenin is saying is that Marx, in fact, means that the working class must break up, smash the ready state, ready-made state machinery, and not to confine itself merely to laying hold of it. Smashy, smashy. Yeah, and, you know, it, 
to to give evidence to this claim, Lenin points to this letter um, that Marx wrote to a certain person, uh, Kugelman, on April 12, 1871, that says, quote, If you look up the last chapter of my 18th Brumaire, you will find that I declare that the next attempt of the French Revolution will be no longer, as before, to transfer the bureaucratic military machine from one hand to another, but to smash it. And this is the precondition for every real people's revolution on the continent. And this is what our heroic party comrades in Paris are attempting. Unquote. And, you know, these words, very key words in this quote, to smash the bureaucratic military machine, express this lesson that Marx and Engels got from the Paris Commune regarding what the proletarian does during a revolution with, with relation to the state. And, Lenin claims that this lesson is not only completely ignored, but is distorted by the person that was like a the prevailing interpretation of Marxism at the time by Kotsky. Heard of him. We've been talking about him a few times on the this, on this show when we're talking about this text. Uh, we're going to have to read him eventually. We, we have to know what exactly he said that made Lenin so mad. It's true. And, you know, kind of looking at the notes here, you know, Jamie kind of makes some important Porn of intervention is like, you know, what makes something a people's revolution? Uh, yeah. Is it just that people are participating in it in large numbers? Because that could be almost anything, right? It's true. And, you know, Lenin goes on to say, you know, in, with regarding to uh, what we just, this, this quote that was just mentioned, you know, there are two points that must be extrapolated from given that, that argument, you know, and We'll, we'll get to the answers of what, to what Jamie kind of asked right now, but first, to go to the first point, because it's addressed in the second, second argument. The first part is that Lenin says, and I think there's something, it's an important intervention, is that this quote by Marx restricts this kind of conclusion to merely the continent of Europe. Now, in 1871, this was something that made sense. You know, at that time... Britain was, you know, an example of a purely capitalist country that, but did not have the, the large state machinery and military that existed in other European countries. And so when formulating this, Marx excluded Britain at, and at the time believed that, you know, there was a revolution, even a people's revolution seemed possible without needing to destroy the ready state ready-made state machinery right and same with america you know people people quote often for instance that like marx believed that and he did believe this that you know shortly after the civil war that oh america could be a place that through um democratic liberal institutions a revolution could manifest a proletarian revolution could manifest but lenin goes on to say that in his time in 1917 that at the time of the first great imperialist war basically world war one at the time was just the great war this restriction made by Marx, Lenin says, is no longer valid. He says that both Britain and America, the biggest and last representatives in the whole world of, quote, Anglo-Saxon liberty, had their own, they no longer um, had, like, they, they basically became this, these organizations that had mo- huge bureaucracies and militaries and had become more like the other European countries. And it's an incredible quote here by Lenin, all European filthy bloody morass of bureaucratic military institutions which subordinate everything to themselves and suppress everything. And says Gotta that, defund the military, man. Gotta defund the police. It's true. And, and you know, and, and you know, it's, it's quite 
pres- smash them. It's quite present by either or. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's quite present by Lenin at this time that you know in America, you know, this is a hundred years ago, but you know, Lenin's only become more correct in terms of in America specifically because like in other places, even like in England or Europe, they view America's police as like, oh dear God, this is totally out of control. So mm-hmm. it's hard to say just, just just because they're gonna manifest socialism through democracy that because of how the police are that is not sufficient. Now mm-hmm. that's the first point. The second point, which is kind of going towards what we're talking about now, is what does it mean for there to be a real people's revolution? Is that particular attention must be paid to this idea that we you know to destroy the bureaucratic military state is the precondition for every pe- real people's revolution. Now, this idea of a real people of a people's revolution seems strange to come from Marx, and it seems so strange that you know Lenin says that there are certain factions. The names aren't particularly important. We'll get to it some later date. But these factions of Russian Plekhanovites, Plekhanovites being followers of Georgi Plekhanov, and this other fa- competing faction during the 1917 of Mensheviks, and these people who were followers that also regarded themselves as Marxists. They might declare this as an, an as this expression of a people's revolution as a, as a slip of the pen on Marx's part. This is what Lenin's saying. And that they had reduced Marxism to such a, a state of wretchedly liberal distortion that nothing exists for them beyond the antithesis between bourgeois revolution and proletarian revolution. Oh. And, yeah. And even this antithesis is they interpret it in an utterly lifeless way. Ouch. Wow. Felt that one. No, and, and, you know, it's quite clear that, you know, Lenin really did not think that these people had uh, uh, an appropriate interpretation of what Marx is saying in terms of this. Because um, they didn't. <laughs> um, but, you know, Lenin, I think, is doing some, some important analysis here because he goes on to, to say, well, let's look at the revolutions of the 20th century at this time as examples that, you know, if you look at the at that time, there was a revolution in Portugal and also a revolution in Turkey. Well, the creation of the country of Turkey was a revolution that occurred in the fall of the Ottoman Empire with Ataturk, Turkey, makes sense. Create, and w- these two revolutions were both bourgeois revolutions because neither of them were people's revolutions and neither of them had a mass of the people, the vast majority, coming out actively, independently, with their own economic and political t- demands to any noticeable degree. That's So I'm a little confused by this part. I had some notes that I wrote down because, yeah, uh, yeah, he says he sort of finds the people's revolution uh, as the mass of the people, their majority, the very lowest social groups crushed by oppression and exploitation. Oh, and by the way, he's referring to the Russian bourgeois revolution of 1905 to 1907. Right. which was basically turning this feudal backwater into some sort of democratic republic, but still a bourgeois one in that they did not change the uh, social relations of this early form of capitalism that they had there. Um, Oh my God, I interrupted myself. Uh, (laughs) I'll start over. The mass of the people, their majority, the very lowest social groups crushed by oppression and exploitation rose independently and stamped on the entire course of the revolution, the imprint of their own demands, their attempt to build in their own way a new society in place of the old society that was being destroyed. So my question is, isn't it kind of vague and confusing that a bourgeois revolution could also be a people's revolution? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I would say that that's not necessarily what he's claiming. I mean, I'm not sure if that's... Let me, let me see. So here in contrast, I, so to answer your question, Jamie, I think the answer is probably yes, in a sense that both there could be an element of a bourgeois revolution at the same time there being a people's revolution because of the moment in time where Russia was, the people and people being like the serfs and like the proletarians were so exploited that they, in a similar sense that one could argue certain elements of the Chinese revolution had an element of a bourgeois revolution because there was a coalition with and a united front with the national bourgeoisie. So there could be elements that are bourgeois revolution, but at the same time also be a people's revolution. All right. All right. You know what? Um, all Any and all questions that we don't have fully satisfying answers for, we're going to ask our panelists. That's right. At uh, a later time. That's right, folks. We're going to have... Who doesn't like a plenary panel to close things out? Folks, it's going to be great. We're going to have ourselves a nice little panel. When we're done with SNR, we're going to ha- we're gonna get a, a, a Leftcom, an ML, and an Anarchist walk into a panel. <laughs> Sounds like a really fun party to me. We must hear all sides. That's right. So Here at Everybody Loves Communism, we like to hear... We like to have a bipartisan approach to everyone. The anarchists and the Marxists all have good points. That never gets old. <laughs> you know how many times I've made that fucking joke? <laughs> I like it so much. It's like one of three jokes that I tell. Oh, my God. And one of many jokes that fell completely flat when I tried it on the majority report. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, that that was kind of like... What is meant by, like, you know, the distinction between a bourgeois revolution and a people's revolution? And in Europe at the time, in 1871, when Marx was writing this, the proletariat as a class organization did not constitute the majority of the people in any country on the continent. Whereas, like, you know, a people's revolution that could sweep the majority into, into kind of bringing them out into power or in terms of their interest being considered could only be embraced if both you consider the proletariat and the peasants. Here I will say, and I don't necessarily agree entirely with this kind of distinction that Lenin makes, and this is me editorializing personally, that I think that they're, uh, this old-school Orthodox Marxist interpretation of like the proletarian and peasants being truly meaningful, I understand where this is coming from historically, but I don't necessarily agree that that is the best way of kind of navigating how to bring about socialism. Well, not anymore, it isn't. No, definitely not anymore, because peasants aren't really a phenomenon. We don't have a lot of those these days. But I think that... not. I mean, not in this country anyway. No, and also many parts of the world as well. Yeah, Um, the peasants have been... I mean, they've been proletarianized. It's true. The people working on the farms. It's true. They do not own the means of production. Mm Mm-mm. And, you know, these two people, but, but it's important, though, that, you know, despite my own kind of criticisms of this, Lenin is correct. That he says that these two classes, the proletarian and the peasants, will then thus constitute, quote unquote, the people. And he uses quotes here. I'm not quoting him. And because, like, what does that mean, the people? And these two classes are then thus united by the fact that the bureaucratic military state machine oppresses, crushes, exploits them. So then to smash this machine, the state, to break it up is thus the interest of, these, of the people, of this group, of the workers, of the peasants. 
and thus that occurring is must be the precondition for there to be a free alliance between the poor peasants and the proletarian. So then from there, there can be democracy to occur. Because without that, there can't be a democracy that's stable and in social transformation, not impossible, at least according to Lenin. So, okay, the proletariat and the peasants, they ally and then they smash the state? Or yeah. the state has to be smashed for them to ally themselves? Yeah, it's, that's that's where I think a little like bit... which came first, the chicken or the egg? I think, I think it's a little bit of that. Dare I say it's dialectical. Oh, shit. The process of doing that does also manifest an alliance. All right, sounds good. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and But it's important to mention that, you know, the Paris Commune, Lenin is claiming, is that was working toward, and this is what why the Commune are to tent with heroic. Paris Commune was working towards such an alliance, and although it did not reach its goal, this is quoting from Lenin, although it did not reach its goal owing to a number of circumstances, internal and external, consequently, in speaking of a real people's revolution, Marx, without in the last discounting the special features of the petty bourgeois, took strict account of the actual balance of class forces in most of continental countries of Europe in 1871. On the other hand, he stated that the smashing of the state machine was required by the interest of both the workers and the peasants, that it united them, that it placed them before the common task of removing the, quote, parasite, here being the state, and of replacing it by something new. By what exactly? And that's the end of the quote. Now, by what exactly will be replacing you know, the state here? And, you know, there are some questions here, but we can get to them at the end. Of yeah. The, at the end. Yeah. We'll go back to them. Let's uh, let's keep it moving. But That's yeah. nice that he gave the Paris Commune points for trying. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I think it, you know, for people who don't, don't know, at the, you know, there's like a story and it's probably apocryphal, but um, there's no real proof that we know this actually happened. But it's a very nice story that apparently, you know, when the Soviet Union had, or at least at that point was like so, uh, socialist Russia. The Soviet Union had not been formed yet. But when the so when when after the revolution in in 1917, after it had lasted longer than the Paris Commune, story goes that when Lenin figured that out, he just started dancing in the snow. He was so happy. Aww. I mean, yeah, fucking dance it up, buddy. You wonder it. I mean, unfortunately, well, we can say all kinds of things about how the Soviet Union ended up, but it did, I will say for it, that it did last a lot longer than the Paris Commune. That's definitely true. So, and you know what? We don't know what would have happened if the, if the communards had been victorious, but I feel like probably a lot of the same issues that came along with the, the, Socialism in one country that the USSR attempted would probably have come about in France if the revolution didn't generalize. But I'm getting way, way ahead of myself. Yeah, I guess we'll never know. I tend to do that. Um, I just, you know, we got to keep our eyes on the prize, folks. That's true. So, okay. Part, chapter three, part two. What is to replace the smashed state machine? I know you're all in suspense. I know you're on the edge of your seat right now. I you know, hope everyone is listening very carefully and astutely. So, ooh, you don't like the bourgeois state? What are you going to replace it with? A lot of people have asked me that question. Probably they asked Lenin that question too. So he's got, he's got some answers for you. So Lenin says, and he always likes to quote Marx, 
in the Communist Manifesto, Marx says the proletariat organized as the ruling class by, quote, winning the battle of democracy. That's what's going to replace the bourgeois state, also known as a dictatorship of the proletariat. Dick Prol. Dick Prol. Cool short way to say it. Love, love to see it. So how did the Paris Commune do this? Why was it a dick prol? <laughs> I had to stop saying that. So Lenin quotes Marx here saying, uh, one, suppression of the standing army and substitution of the armed people. They definitely did that. Hmm. Two, commune councillors were elected by the people and fully recallable by them. So we got a little, you know, we still got representative democracy, but it's a lot more direct than right. it was in the past. Uh, three. Most of the representatives came from the working class. So that's important. Four, police became agents of the commune, as did other agents of the administration. Mm, not sure how I feel about this one. <laughs> Maybe we'll discuss it a bit later. Uh, I forget what number I'm on, but <laughs> next point. Public servants only got working men's wages. So, you know, no more of these high salaries or like fancy privileges for people who are working in government. Um, they also broke the power of the priests, which is very important because the priests were very supportive of the monarchy. Uh, not even the bourgeois state, the fucking monarchy. That's some medieval shit, man. Mm -mm, mm -mm. And um, another point he makes is that the judges, they stopped pretending to be independent. Uh, they got elected and recalled just like the counselors, which I fucking love this because of all the branches of this stupid bourgeois government that we have now, like the myth, the myth of this neutral judiciary is fucking ridiculous. Like nobody believes that except for like, I guess, a few liberal process nerds. Are you suggesting, Jamie, that the institution of the Supreme Court is not above politics? How oh. dare you? How dare you? <laughs> There's a good quote in here about that, too, but I uh, I was trying to summarize, so I didn't put as many quotes in this time. So, but here's a quote, right? <laughs> yeah, this is important. So, Lenin concludes, The commune, therefore, appears to have replaced the smashed state machine, quote, only by fuller democracy. Abolition of the standing army all officials to be elected and subject to recall. But as a matter of fact, this only, quote unquote only, signifies a gigantic replacement of certain institutions by institutions of a fundamentally different type. This is exactly a case of, quote, quantity being transformed into quality. Democracy, introduced as fully and consistently as it is at all conceivable, is transformed from bourgeois into proletarian democracy. From the state, uh, a special force for the suppression of a particular class, into something which is no longer the state proper. So basically, bourgeois democracy becomes proletarian democracy because they removed a lot of the checks on the people's power that exist in a bourgeois republic. Now, I'm not going to say they removed all the checks on the people's power, um, but let's, let's stay with his argument here. So, yeah, he goes along to say that this is me again, paraphrasing. 
uh, you need to crush all of this bourgeois resistance to finish the job to to do communism, right? But instead of these special bodies of armed men, it's this time it's the majority of the population doing it. And this is something that I very much agree with Lenin on. Um, we need to probably violently overthrow the ruling class and, you know, just get them get them vanquished. But um, I think one thing I would caution against is it really needs to remain a true people's militia and not just become another professionalized army. I think that would uh, we we want to avoid the pitfalls of recreating just another state. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's important to mention as well that this is a task that I mean, at least according to Lenin, something that is not that we desire to be the case, but rather something that would just manifest out of the, the reality of the situation that does come about. That's right. We're just doing science, all right? We're observers. So Lenin says, in this sense, the state begins to wither away. Instead of the special institutions of a privileged minority, privileged officialdom, the chiefs of the standing army, the majority itself can directly fulfill all these functions and the more the functions of state power are performed by the people as a whole, the less need there is for the existence of this power. All right. So to that end, here are some good things that Lenin says the commune did. So they ended high. He, he kind of repeats himself here, but uh, let's just stay with him. He's excited. All right. So like he said, no more high pay and privileges for representatives in government. They only get working men's wages, and this was important to promote democracy. Well, to be fair, he's kind of getting it from what Marx said about the Paris Commune, right? Mm -hmm. So he's saying, no, that's a good idea. Let's take that. Yeah, fair enough. He has to show Marx saying the thing before he can say the thing himself. Um, question mark, though. Do we still believe this? Because if you notice, um, say our representatives, in our glorious representatives in Congress, they don't make nearly as much as the capitalists in the private sector. But they still do a lot of shitty things to the people, to the working people. Well, I mean, I would push back on that necessarily because, yes, in terms of paid salary, that is correct. But, you know, not to date this episode, but, you know, dur during the near the time of like when this was being filmed, there was a recent controversy of Nancy Pelosi being saying that, oh, no, I don't believe that there should be any restrictions on, on uh, elected officials, oh, federal yeah. elected, elected officials <laughs> uh, owning stock. And, it's, and the fact of the matter is that if elected officials can do that, they can become extremely wealthy. Nancy Pelosi, at the time of this episode, had a net worth of $100 million. It's going to be more by the time this runs. Yeah, so, and, you know, there are a lot of any people like, say, uh, Senator... Mitch McConnell, mm -hmm. uh, like minority leader at the time of this episode, uh, Mitch McConnell, his like net worth is like in the you know tens of millions like of dollars. The fact of the matter is that that doesn't make sense if he's been an official his whole life, unless he's making money off of making these deals and trades on stocks of the legislation he's passing, and that's totally legal. So, mm -hmm. so in this sense that. They are not just merely like representing the rich. They are the rich. Mm -hmm. Well, 
they seem to make out pretty well for themselves. I, I imagine that Lennon would want to get rid of those. Uh, like they shouldn't be allowed to do any of that shit either. No, absolutely. So yeah, fair enough. Um, okay. Another important point Lennon makes in this part. He says that capitalism has created these large scale operations and sort of simplified, even mechanized the various work of running society that they could easily be run by anyone. Quote, capitalist culture has created large scale production, factories, railways, the postal service, shout out to the postal service, uh, <laughs> telephones, etc. Telephones. Which one of these things is not like the others? I mean, I guess he's talking about the information superhighway, right? Well, telephones at the time was like a, the was basically what we view the internet now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess, anyway, I'm going to keep going. We can discuss it at the end. Uh, telephones, etc. And on this basis, the great majority of the functions of the old state power have become so simplified and can be reduced to such exceedingly simple operations of registration, filing, and checking that they can be easily performed by every literate person. And remember, communists are big on literacy, can quite easily be performed for ordinary workmen's wages, and that these functions can and must be stripped of every shadow of privilege, of every semblance of official grandeur. And, you know, he's kind of repeating himself here, but that's all right, because I like what he's saying. And he says, go off. Uh, yeah, go off, King. And he says all of these things, um, this this sort of takeover of the functions of the bourgeois state by the people, um, that these things can function as a bridge from capitalism to socialism. Um, he says they acquire their full meaning and significance as they function to expropriate the expropriators, a.k.a. the bourgeoisie, the transferring of production from private to public and democratic operation. So basically, the socialist state isn't just administering services in sort of a neutral way, right? It's also doing its job, which is to expropriate, to, trans to transform the mode of production, to change the social relations uh, under which things are produced and distributed from a model of private ownership to a model of public ownership. That's right. And it's, it's important also to mention that this is what, what sometimes socialists mean when they say it's socializing services. Mm -hmm. Like it's a, rather than being privately managed and just individualized in terms of services existing, such that, oh, Jeff Bezos owns, say, the supply chains of Amazon. Those supply chains should exist for everybody in society and should be socialized. Mm -hmm. So, oh, he's going to quote Marx again. You don't say. The commune, Marx wrote, made the catchword of all bourgeois revolutions cheap government a reality by abolishing the two greatest sources of expenditure, the army and the officialdom. Again, we got to defund the police, folks. Marx and Reagan, they both said government, there's not a problem. Government is the problem. That's right. That's right. They just had different, different solutions for the same problem. I like that. I like that. Bourgeois, bourgeois revs, they're like, we want cheap gov. We want limited gov. And Marx is like, great. You started it, we'll finish it. Exactly. We're going to finish the job. Defund the army, defund the police, defund the fucking state bureaucracy, and hopefully build something better in its place. TBD. Getting small government done. That's right. So I have some more questions I put, but you know what? I'm going to save these for the end. How about that? Sounds good. Uh, and that means we can move on to chapter three, part three. 
abolition of parliamentarism. Yes, and before we begin on this part, we must kindly remind all the ones listening that if you want to support the program, <sighs> be sure to subscribe to our Patreon or fans.fm. It's patreon.com slash everybody loves communism. It should also be in the description of the episode. And or fans.fm slash everybody loves communism. So be sure to check out check out so you can subscribe for more content and also support the show. Oh, you're so good at this. All right, well, thank you. Now, <laughs> to continue on, chapter three, part three, abolition of parliamentarism. Now, it begins with this quote by Marx that Lenin is quoting from. It's the commune, Marx wrote, was to be a working, not a parliamentary body, executive, and legislative at the same time. Now, this section here is where the rest of this, like this quote here that, that Lenin got from Marx, is where the rest of this section will be, will be deriving from. Now, at the time that Marx was writing, I'm sorry, at the time that Lenin was writing, there was a, this also belongs, Lenin's saying that this quote here also belongs to the now forgotten words of Marxism. You know, and he, and he bemoans a bunch of people at the time, the professional cabinet ministers and parliamentarians, the traitors to the proletariat, and the, quote, practical socialists of our day have left all criticism of parliamentarism to the anarchists, and on this wonderfully reasonable ground, they denounce all criticism of parliamentarism as anarchism. And Lenin had two exclamation points here. Yeah, and that's an insult if you're Lenin. Yeah, and, you know, Lenin was not happy that this kind of criticism of and parliamentary politics as being simply an anarchist point of view, he viewed that as like, what the hell are you talking about? He viewed this as like something that was at the heart of what Marx was arguing after what was learned from the Paris Commune. And he says that it's not surprising that the proletarian of so-called advanced parliamentary countries disgusted with such socialists such as enlists a bunch of names that you know, not important, that had been with increasing frequency giving its sympathies to anarcho-syndicalism. And to be clear, he does not like it because he says, in spite of the fact that the latter is merely the twin brother for opportunism. All right, all right. Let's take it easy on our anarchist brothers and sisters. But, you know, these are Lenin's words, not mine, but let's move, move, move forward. You know, the fact of the matter is, like, he did not view this characterization of Marx or better said, this characterization of criticizing parliamentary politics as anarchist as a correct stance. And, mm. you know, I think us too, we would agree with that. Yeah. Now, he does go on to say that, you know, it's that Marx knew how to break with anarchism ruthlessly because it, even though, and as he said, break with anarchism ruthlessly for its inability to make use even of the pigsty of bourgeois parliamentarism, clearly did not like it especially when the situation was obviously not revolutionary. But at the same time, he knew how to subject parliamentarism to genuine revolutionary proletarian criticism. So these are basically two currents that we see coming out of Lenin here. Um, funnily enough, like people sometimes act surprised that the more Leninist-inclined types in, say, DSA are not afraid of engaging with the big sty of bourgeois parliamentarism. Uh, personally... I'm a little bit skeptical of it, but I am somewhat anarchist adjacent, so I would be. Um, but they also keep in mind that eventually, the situ hopefully, when the situation 
does become revolutionary when the material conditions are favorable. Uh, we need to do more than just, uh, you know, run people in strategic class struggle elections or whatever. We actually got to overthrow the bourgeois state. So these are two things that Lenin believed in. He believed in both of them. Yeah. And I think that that pointing towards the kind of this train that's existing in DSA at the moment of this recording is important. And, um, you know, and Lenin goes on to say here with regarding this, because he says we need to also subject parliamentarism to genuine revolutionary proletarian criticism. He does go on to say just subsequently after that to decide once every few years which members of the ruling class is to repress and crush the people through parliament. This is the real essence of bourgeois parliamentarism, not only in parliamentary constitutional monarchies, but also in the, Demo- in the most democratic republics. Clearly, it's- they could be even more democratic than they are. It's true. And I think, I think that kind of contrasting that is intentional to show that they're all more manifestations of the same phenomenon. And, you know, essentially what Lenin is saying here is like, it's, it's kind of this trope that you might have heard out there on the internet or like kind of like this left populist point of view. But basically, you're basically just choosing who your oppressors are. You know, you're kind of like just picking, oh, well, this guy is like going to be nicer. A communist um, argument that people had about, say, picking Bernie, for instance, in the 2020 or 2016 election was that, well, we're picking the nicest person we want to then push against. It's like, which is, you know, a correct, at least from our point of view, stance of like kind of approaching bourgeois parliamentary politics. I mean... I think it was a good idea as a progressive, but as a communist, I think it's pretty fully discredited. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of things we kind of talk about regarding that, but let's not, you know, retread the 2020 election at this moment in time. Oh, you don't want to relitigate the 2020 election? Not right now. Not in the middle of our podcast on state and revolution? Okay. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Lenin says here, it's like, once again, we must say the lessons of Marx based on the study of the commune have been so completely forgotten that the present day, quote, social Democrat, unquote, in other words, present day traitor to socialism, that's (laughs) really strong words by Lenin, really cannot understand any criticism of parliamentarism other than anarchist or reactionary criticism. The way out of parliamentarism is not, of course, the abolition of representative institutions and the elective principle. But Bordiga the, might beg to differ, but continue. <laughs> but the conversion of the representative institutions from talking shops into working bodies. The commune was to be a working, not a parliamentary body, executive and legislative at the same time, kind of bringing back the Marx quote. So kind of what, what is being said here is Lenin is saying that to, to overcome you know, liberal democracy or like parliamentary politics of like this kind of having the legislative over there, like the representatives over there, there's other bodies over there. The way you go about it is by, you know, clearly you write rules or you kind of engage with like the rules and agreed upon laws of society, but then also you go do it. And the people who do it are, you know, the workers, people of society, the people who make society function, everyone that builds everything, the people that maintain services, that drive the trucks, that you know, hold the hammers, that type the code, you know, that talk on the podcast, everyone that kind of does like all the stuff in society, like those people and the people who are, they're like, you know, drafting the rules of society should not be distinct. It should be one and one and the same. I like how you got us in there. 
at the end. Well, I mean, it's like it's a we're we have we're content creators. There's people people need to consume content. We're essential workers. Okay, let's not go that far. <laughs> but point being is, um, you know, that, this point here, a working not a parliamentary body. This, you know, Lenin says here is a blow straight from the shoulder at the present day parliamentary country, whether from America to Switzerland, from France to Britain, Norway, and so forth. That in these countries, the real business of state is performed behind the scenes and is so carried on by the departments, chancelleries, and general staffs. Parliament is given up to talk for the special purpose of fooling the common people. And it's kind of what we're, what we're just mentioning right now. Now, London goes on to talk a, quite a bit amount of just talking about the moments in terms of like the revolutionary situation in Russia at that time, different factions. I, I don't really think it's important to really talk about that. If you want to, you can go read it. But... Uh, it's not really, I think, pertinent to what we're discussing at this moment in time. However, um, what he kind of goes back to in terms of talking about the commune is that we cannot imagine democracy, even proletarian democracy, without representative institutions. But we can and must imagine democracy without parliamentarism. If criticism of bourgeois society is not mere word for us, if the desire to overthrow the rule of the bourgeoisie is our earnest, and sincere desire, and not a mere election cry for work, catching workers' votes, as it is with, and these are two different factions um, in the Russian Revolution at the time, it's like the Mensheviks and social revolutionaries, and also names other people. It is instructive to note that in speaking of the function of those officials who are necessary for the commune and for proletarian democracy, Marx compares them to the workers of every other employer that is, of the ordinary capitalist enterprise with its workers, foremen, and accountants. Now, what do we think this means, Jamie? Um, wait, where are we? <laughs> Sorry. No, we're talking about, like, what, why does he think people... So there's a note here. It's like, why does he think people as they are now can dispense with the bourgeois state but cannot dispense with foremen and accountants? Yeah, that's my question. Yeah. I mean, I don't have an answer for it. I'm just like kind of poking holes in his argument because I'm skeptical of everything that I read and you should be too. And why are you skeptical of this, of what this claim is being said here, Jamie? Well, it just kind of feels like he's making an argument from human nature, right? When he says people as they are now, and there are different translations, uh, a different, in a, a different part of this section, um, he says human nature dot 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 cannot do without subordination, control and managers. And I'm very suspect of that. Anytime somebody makes an argument from human nature, because I just don't think there really is any such thing as human nature as divorced from the particular material conditions that are causing people to act in certain ways. Yeah. And, you know, if we go on further with like one of the, the text, you know, Lenin saying that there is no utopianism in Marx in the sense that he made up or invented a new society. He says he's learning from, a, from to, for the new society to come out of the old, he's learning from what existed before. That's why he's like drawing lessons from the commune, just as like other revolutionary thinkers learn about other movements. And that, you know, so thus, and this is what Lenin is saying, that abolishing the bureaucracy at once, everywhere and completely is out of the question. He said that's the utopia idea, but to destroy the old system and to begin with a new one and make a possible abolition of the old bureaucracy Lenin saying that that is not a utopia and his experience of the commune as he's claiming 
now we're kind of going to kind of the question we were kind of discussing right now. It's like, capitalism simplifies the function of state administration. It makes it possible to cast bossing aside and to confine the whole matter to the organization of the proletarians as the ruling class, which will hire workers, foremen, and accountants in the name of the whole of society. And then he says that, no, we want, because he says, like, these anarchist dreams based upon incomprehension of the task of the proletarian dictatorship are totally alien to Marxism, and as a matter of fact, serve only to postpone the social revolution until people are different. No, we want the social revolution with people as they are now, with people who cannot dispense with subordination, control, and form an accountants. Now, kind of what Jamie's saying before, not to go back to the question that Jamie is posing for us, you know, do we think that this is an argument from human nature? It's in, we need to consider this. Like, if, if, if so, it's, it, it, you know, I, I, we were talking about this before the show, but we think that might be kind of an idealist argument almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, it certainly is. Also, I must admit, neither of us uh, speak Russian, so we probably should get a Russian speaker to see if human nature is a proper translation of this quote that I found because different translations translate it differently. Yes. But yeah, that I think, okay, I think he's doing a bit of, I think he's being sort of vague here. Mm-hmm. And Lenin was very smart, so I have to imagine that he's doing it on purpose. Like, when he talks about the foremen and accountants, the subordination, the control, the managers... Sometimes he makes it sound like these people are just uh, doing these tasks purely at the behest of the people who put them there, right? Just like if you, it's an example that Marx uses in Capital, where if there's like a guy playing the violin by himself, he doesn't need a conductor, right? But if there are a bunch of people trying to play music together, then they do need a conductor uh, just to coordinate what they're doing and make sure they're doing it you know they're working together properly and you can compare that to any kind of large-scale production operation right it needs a foreman and the foreman's job isn't necessarily to dominate people to coerce them to control them they're just helping them do their job right so i feel like the devil's in the details here when we're talking about the foreman and accountants and what degree of control they're actually exerting on the workers, on the people. Right. Um, and I feel like there's a little sleight of hand going on, right? Because if the function of these state officials and, you know, foreman, accountants, economic... Right. And to be this focus here, foreman accountants, you know, is kind of what, what is being said here is basically like if there's this new bureaucracy that's run by a worker state, yeah. what is being said is like these people, whether it be kind of like the people that operate the machinery or acts of reproducing the state and society that those are what he's kind of referring to as foreman accountants yeah, like, and to, like, to be clear for everybody and and running production like making the stuff right, because right remember the state is in charge of production now um so if they really are just foreman and account if they're just mere appendages like doing a task that people hire them to do apparat checks if you will yeah then like why is it desirable or necessary to do away with that to wither that right like what is the difference this sounds like it's the same thing as the the administration of things that Engels posits as the final form of governance under communism. You know, it's not it's not going to be a government of people anymore. It's going to be an administration of things. Basically, the state's job is no longer to control and dominate the workers in service of accumulation of capital, 
but just to do these very simple administrative tasks that, you know, even a computer could hypothetically do in some future scenario. Um, and it just feels to me like something is a little bit off about that. Yeah. And, you know, if we go back to kind of the text, you know, and I think I will concede to Jamie here in the sense that like it does seem like a little bit of kind of it's a little bit of a vagueness in terms of like where does the subordination come from? Because he says the subordination, however, must be to the armed vanguard of the exploited and working people. In other words, the proletariat. A beginning can and must be made at once overnight to replace the specific bossing of state officials by the simple functions of foreman accountants, functions which are already fully within the ability of the average town dweller and can be and can well be performed for working men wages. So there is a kind of a little bit of kind of like one aspect is, well, anyone that's in the state in terms of reproducing society can be done by any average person. Sure. But there there is a sense of kind of like Oh, those are doing the operation of the state of society. Those are beneath the armed vanguard and exploited work and working people, which you know, are basically the pro- proletariat. Which you know, and on the one hand, sounds great, but how does that go about? Given the fact that at the end of the day, you know, we want to kind of wither away of that bureaucracy. Right. Like I think he says in other places that he's okay. Like. He thinks the workers, like people, human nature, whatever, they need subordination. They need control. It just needs to be somehow democratically imposed by themselves on themselves, right? Uh, So if it sounds like these officials are going to start out as being a little more than mere accessories, mere foremen and accountants, right? It, It sounds like he thinks that people need a little more doming than uh than his initial description of this would imply. And if that is the case, like, why not just come out and say it, you know? And and if that's the case, what is going to compel this move? Because it's a process of transformation that he's right. describing, a deepening of democracy, a withering of the state. What's going to compel that process to happen, to move from a model of this sort of bureau- bureaucratically controlled state capitalism I mean, we haven't really touched the idea of um, like the law of value get in all of this or like what do we do about the value form? Uh, the process of turning this towards, uh, you know, the administration of things, like he says, like what's going to make that happen? Yeah. And I think, you know, this is next section. It's quite important. It just kind of does touch a lot of what Jamie's saying. But, you know, we can all kind of see Well, we, we might we'll discuss it further, but this next part is quite important. It's like, you know, and I'll read from it and also talk about it as I read from it. Because we, the workers, shall organize large-scale production on the basis of what capitalism has already created, relying on our own experience as workers, basically. We all kind of have our skills that have been developed as us being workers. Establishing strict iron discipline backed up by the state power of the armed workers. Basically, since we the, the state will now take over of all the production society and then the workers have their experience, we can continue running of society but the state being the backing of that as opposed to the market. We shall reduce the role of state officials to that of simply carrying out our instructions, responsible, revocable, modestly paid foreman accountants. So kind of like the the state officials kind of being like, you can put them there, but you can also remove them. And then they're, they're doing what we're telling them, which is, you know, we can talk about that. This, this is our proletarian task. This is what we can and must start with in accomplishing the proletarian revolution. 
Such a beginning on the basis of large-scale production will of itself lead to the gradual withering away of all bureaucracy, to the gradual creation of an order, an order without inverted commas, an order bearing no similarity to wage slavery, an order under which the functions of control and accounting becoming more and more simple will be performed by each um, will be performed by each in turn will then become a habit and will finally die out as a special function of a special section of the population. So this is like the sec- important section in terms of way actually talks a little bit about this is how withering away of the state will manifest. What do we think? Yeah, I'm skeptical. I mean, I think it made sense at the time to believe that, especially based on the very uh, good start, the good try that they made in the Paris Commune. But the Paris Commune lasted two months, and I don't. I think it's a bit of a thin data point, as I've said before. And I don't know, like if there's not a force to cause, like I don't see what's going to cause the state bureaucracy to wither away uh in the future given that it never has in the past and you can say that you know that was dependent on a lot of historical contingencies which i agree with but i don't see a time when those contingencies will not be there yeah i mean on the other hand one could argue that this kind of withering away of the state is that essentially since the state will encompass all these different aspects of the means of production and the reproducing of society. And then slowly the distinction between this kind of like official and then worker starts to kind of slowly just merge into all together that everyone is just doing their jobs and, and work that needs to do for reproducing society on their own, that that is how that withers away because it just becomes like totally Everyone just does it. Like a good example could be like everyone just does say chores, for example, right? Like it's just that's just what you do. I mean, I don't, but <laughs> most people do. No, but I mean, like it's, we're talking about like you know in terms of like a, a larger aspect, and it's like kind of like on a larger side. I would do my look. My own house is very messy because I'm the only one who lives here. But in a communist world, I would certainly do my part. Like. It's okay. Here's an analogy, right? When I lived with roommates, my room was a mess, but I was really good about the common spaces. And I feel like that's how it'd be under communism. I mean, I'm still, I can do my personal chores, but I'll do chores for other people out there in the world. So what you're saying, Jamie, is that you do want someone, you do want the workers to kind of impose their own kind of hierarchy onto themselves. Kind of what you're saying before. Mm, I don't know about that. (laughs) I'm joking. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe I do need someone to come here and dominate me. And that's the only way I'm going to clean my house. You need to clean your room, Jamie. That's what needs to happen. Oh no. I knew, I knew it. I knew this was a Jordan Peterson podcast. We're you, doing cultural Marxism. You, you Listen, you just need a tall, thin rail man with a Kermit voice to come in and tell you, you need to clean your room. Oh, wow. This is uh, ELC pod after dark, folks. <laughs> that is not what I intended with no that. No one needs to know about that. No, no, no. That is not what I meant. Anyway, to focus back on this in terms of finishing up part three of this chapter. 
He, he, he mentions a pretty important, like, shout-out to the Postal Service as saying this is an example of the socialist economic system. You know, he's saying the only boys in blue I trust are the Postal Service. Yeah, he loves the fucking Postal Service. We love our male folks. I mean, who doesn't, really? It's like, a, it's, at the present, the Postal Service is a business organized on the lines of a state capitalist monopoly. monopoly. Imperialism is gradually transforming all trusts into the organizations of a similar type in which standing over the common people who are overworked and starved, one has the same bourgeois bureaucracy. But the mechanism of social management is here already to hand. What he's saying basically is like because the way that things are kind of being organized under capitalism, that infrastructure of the existing, of what would end up being a socialist economy already is there. It's just a matter of kind of making the bosses not be there and then just the workers run them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, once we have overthrown the capitalists, crushed the resistance of those exploiters with the iron hand of the armed workers and smashed the bureaucratic machinery of the modern state, we shall have a splendidly equipped mechanism freed from the parasite, the state in other words, a mechanism which can very well be set going by the United Workers themselves who will hire technicians, formers and accountants and pay them all as indeed all state officials in general workmen wages so he is you know, he claims that this is a practical task which can be immediately fulfilled in relation to all trust kind of showing like this if we look at the postal service of as it exists exists now or at this time and in moving and imagining a socialism that the transition is already there for it to be part of a socialist society now mm, but a communist one TBD. Yeah. And he says that bringing all that, bringing like the, the, these technicians, the foreman, the accountants, as well as officials, and putting them under the control of the armed proletariat, that's the immediate goal. And that that, is what he's saying, will bring about the abolition of parliamentarism and the preservation of these institutions. And so, you know, we kind of talked about this, you know, and we kind of talked about what that means. But, you know, we now need to talk about kind of like, you know, what then, given if we destroyed the bourgeois state and replace it with a proletarian state, how then you organize the society together. Are you saying that the postal service is socialism? Wow. Maybe, 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 you know, small brain take, Oh, socialism when the government does things. Medium brain take, no, it's different. Big brain take socialism when the government does things. I mean, I don't actually disagree with any of this. I'm just not convinced that it has anything to do with communism. It's, I mean, it's a step that's, towards that. That's my hot take. Is it, though? Is it? I mean, it can be if like everything is socialized and then we just kind of get rid of it. I mean, he says himself this is a state capitalist monopoly. I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm jumping ahead a little bit. I feel like you are. Because I just read uh, a very good article by my pals Jasper Burns who's been on the show before and Joshua Clover who is going to be on the show at some point but um yeah they got some critiques well we'll we'll get to them in due time but now let's look at section four all right yeah we just got to finish telling you what Lennon actually said before we go arguing with him and each other yeah true we just can't help it we're just nerds all right where are we at? We're at an hour, 13 minutes. Ooh, I'm kind of hungry. I might order some food. Okay. <laughs> Let me 
are correct, sir. All right, so. And we're back. We're back. So, yeah, maybe we'll cut out some of those critiques, save them for the end. Maybe we'll keep them in because they felt natural. We'll see. We'll see. Now, you know, Jamie, I think you have this next part for section four. Okay. Um, So part four of chapter three is on, quote, organization of national unity. We all just have to come together as a nation to do socialism. Folks, it's just what you're talking about is bipartisan compromise. Mm -hmm. Sure. Common sense solutions. So he starts with some quotes from Marx. Once again, he loves Marx. Just loves them. Loves the shit out of them. Fucking get a room, guys. So here's a quote from Marx that he uses that I think is good. Quote, uh, and it's on, it's, it's, again, it's about the Paris Commune. Like a lot of these Marx quotes come from his book on the Civil War in France. So, quote, national unity was not to be broken, but on the contrary, organized by the communal constitution. It was to become a reality by the destruction of state power, which posed as the embodiment of that unity, yet wanted to be independent of and superior to the nation on whose body it was but a parasitic excrescence. And I looked this up. An excrescence is basically like a boil, like a yucky growth, particularly caused by disease or some abnormality. And Marx would know because he had boils on his ass. Look it up. It's true. Uh, Maybe not. He was, uh, you know, you write what you know. So back to Marx. While the merely repressive organs of the old governmental power were to be amputated, its legitimate functions were to be wrested from an authority claiming the right to stand above society and restored to the responsible servants of society. So basically, he's saying state power, but make it democratic. Like the bad stuff that the state does, um, we're going to stop that. And the fine stuff that the state does, like, oh, I don't know, the Postal Service, um, we're going to take that over for the people. So, question, can the nation even have an existence that's separate from the state? Think about it. Think about it as we go. Yeah, think about it. We'll talk, we, we might talk about it more later. So, okay, he says, he goes hard on the suck dems, the suck dems, right? Like, uh, X. Ooh, not even current sock dems. Ex sock dems. Wow, he's just saying he just became so right wing. He's no longer even a social democrat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it meant something slightly different uh, back then, but still, still. Um, like ex sock dem Edward Bernstein. Bernstein. Am I doing the Corbin thing where I'm Berenstein <laughs> mispronouncing it on purpose to do uh, tropes? Oh my god! I am allowed. I can do as many tropes as I want, all right? Edward Bernstein. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ed- Edward Epstein. Oh, my God, Jamie. No, no, no relation. Um, I mean, I'm probably related to all these people. Uh, Edward Bernstein say that Marx, when speaking of smashing the state, is saying the same thing as Proudhon, i.e. that we must govern by federalism with no central authority. But... Leiden says this is a distortion. Again, he's so mad. He's so mad at these sock dems for calling him an anarchist. Yeah, it's just like, wh- who the fuck are you calling anarchist? <laughs> he's so mad. Like, I mean, I don't get mad at all when people call me an anarchist, but. Well, it's because you are an anarchist, me Jamie. And him are different. <laughs> TBD. So, Marx wants to smash the bourgeois state, 
clearly, but this does not imply any position on centralism versus federalism, says Lenin. Marx agrees. That's fair. That's fair. It's like it doesn't mean anything apart from that. Yeah. Yeah. Why you got to read so much into it? Now, so Marx agrees with Proudhon on some things and disagrees with him on others, says Lenin. But it's the opposite of what Bernstein thinks it is because he's an idiot. Wow. All right. So here's the truth. All right. And Bernstein has it backwards. You already had truth bombs. Yeah. So Marx agreed with Proudhon and Bakunin that we must smash the modern state machine. Obviously, got to do that. Mm-hmm. He disagreed with them when it came to centralism versus federalism. And now Lenin calls federalism a petty bourgeois in a rather ad hominem way that I don't think the anarchists appreciate. But, you know, Lenin's going to Lenin. I mean, Lenin, of, of course, has a history of, you know, having his issues with uh not just attacking, but also attacking anarchists in his history as well. Well, you know, it had to, I, I sensed it was coming. Like the first few chapters of this, I was like, oh, wow, he's really leaving the anarchists alone. That's nice. And <laughs> nope. I mean, he meant what he said. He, he, he did not like anarchists and he also showed it in his actions. Yeah. Uh, he put his money where his mouth was, I guess. So Lenin says, quote, only those who are imbued with the Philistine superstitious belief in the state can mistake the destruction of the bourgeois state machine for the destruction of centralism. Wow. So basically only people who think that the state is magic <laughs> think that you can, you got to have central. I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm tired. I'm <laughs> really tired. You think the state is magic you think that destroying it means also that you don't ever get to centralize anything ever again. This is, um, yeah, it's mixed up. So now, if the proletariat and the poor peasants take state power into their own hands, organize themselves quite freely in communes, still quoting Lenin, by the way, and unite the action of all the communes in striking at capital, in crushing the resistance of the capitalists, and in transferring the privately owned railways, factories, land, and so on to the entire nation, to the whole of society... Won't that be centralism? Won't that be the most consistent democratic centralism and moreover proletarian centralism? I mean, I'm not sure. What do you think is centralist about that? Because this sounds like it's just being done by a federation of communes working together. I think what he's mean by centralist is the fact that it it there's a concentration of like this means of production and reproducing society in one in one entity. But that's why I think what he mean by centralizing, because it's like the state having all of that together. But I mean, I think what he would say is like, yes, you need the communes because that is how it would wither away the, the larger centralized entity. But he's not saying that. I, I'm, I'm maybe I'm just reading into it. Yeah, I guess there's also sort of a, some centralization involved when you have a state taking over large industries. Right. Say things that span the entire country or even other countries as well and need some kind of large scale coordination. I mean, in a certain sense, it's almost like Lenin is saying, like, for the state to become gone, the state needs to get you need to get you need to get big to get small again. Like it's Mm -hmm. like you need to spend money to make money. Yeah. Well, again, we'll see how that works out for him. We'll see how that works out for them. So he says he's going hard on the suck dem now. Again, he says Bernstein simply cannot conceive of the possibility of voluntary centralism 
of the voluntary fusion of the proletarian communes for the sole purpose of destroying bourgeois rule and the bourgeois state machine. All right. I think that's still kind of a funny definition of centralism, but I see what he's I see what he's saying. Um, yeah, it sounds like mm, it kind of means what he wants it to mean in this case. But like, yeah, the idea being that I guess the sock Dems can't conceive of people voluntarily organizing themselves into some model of state socialism. Right. They can only see people voluntarily doing uh, anarchist federalism. Right. So I'm quoting Lenin again. As though foreseeing that his views might be distorted, Marx expressly emphasized that the charge that the commune had wanted to destroy national unity to abolish the central authority was a deliberate fraud. Marx purposely used the words national unity was to be organized so as to oppose conscious democratic proletarian centralism to bourgeois military bureaucratic centralism. I communists should be patriotic too. Oh God, no. <laughs> I mean, is, is that what he's saying here or is he just trying to be kind of pragmatic as to what needs to happen to run shit when there's a socialist revolution in only one country? I mean, I think that, you know, hate to kind of dip into discourse, but, you know, I think part of it has to do with like, th- there's a distinction between patriotism and like, uh, viewing like, Nation, like the nation from the point of view of like an oppressed people than it is about say say like in the United States where patriotic means like proud and like the nation that is like a, is an oppressor nation so I think it's probably kind of a little so bit so is France right no I mean I, I think I think what the claim here is like it's more about like the Paris Commune is this thing that's growing out of like the nation of oppressed people being the workers of France not whereas like the bourgeois kind of patriot patriotism whatever it it is is this idea of like the monarchy of france or like the the culture the bourgeois culture of france like the idea of france is bourgeois whereas like the paris commune is a new thing that would manifest let's call it france too yeah france but make it good france france too electric boogaloo yeah sure sure um, so yeah, that's the end of that section. Yeah, and you know, we're now we're entering, you know, the last section, part five, abolition of the parasite state. Fortunately for all those listening at home, this is a very short section. You know, <laughs> and you know Fortunately for everyone listening at home and the people making this podcast right now <laughs> at my home. Yes, very much so. And you know, this is a very short section and can be best summarized by looking essentially what, what the section is about is pretty much talking about all right now we've kind of looking at the state what is why like why is it that the paris commune was important in terms of understanding how to overcome the bourgeois state and you know i want to read the quote here essentially mark the deuce from the whole history of socialism and the political struggle that the state was bound to disappear and that the transitional form of its disappearance the transition from the from state to non-state would be the proletariat organized as the ruling class. Now, Marx, however, did not set out to discover the political forms of this future stage. And, you know, basically, Lenin here is making this important assertion that, you know, for to arrive at communism from capitalism, there needs to be remove the state and then to arrive at this entity that he claims is this non-state. And that is like that entity that he says would be withering away 
of the state and it'd just be, you know, communism because there'd be no state. And the now, administration of things rather than people. Right. Granted, I'm not convinced that that's possible because the distribution of resources is always going to be political. But let's let's stay with them. Right. And, you know, we're kind of getting to the end of the, end of the chapter. You know, essentially, he says that. And I think I think he has a point here that, you know, it, in a sense that Marx did not discover this. What was discovered in terms of like this kind of vehicle of like how proletarian democracy would come about is the commune. That was this quote unquote discovered by the proletarian revolution, by the experience of doing this. Hence, like why the name of this chapter, chapter three, is the experience of the Paris Commune of 1871. It's why kind of going back, it's important to mention that, that the act of doing that is how, as he says, the commune is the first attempt by a proletarian revolution to smash the bourgeois state machine. And it is the political form at last discovered by which the state, smash state machine can and must be replaced. I think, and you know, we're going need here, but you know, I think that is kind of really important that I think regardless of what you believe about Lenin's theory of the state, I think there is something to be said about some political forms and entities can only be discovered by just doing the thing. Got to do the thing. Because otherwise, like, you're not going to understand. You can theorize. We can just be in our armchairs all fucking day. We can just be talking about, we can all just be listening to content. We can all just be, like, talking on this microphone and podcast. We can just be, you know, reading books. But until we're actually out and engaging in the real world, in the reality that exists of the way society currently is constituted, and to change that society into one that is not class society that is not oppressive that is not capitalist and is not wage labor based we cannot know how this is going to form period Mm -hmm. we can only guess yep so and i think you know now jamie you 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 wanted to suggest that you think that this is kind of a you have some you have some doubts about you know this kind of interpretation of the of marxist theory of the state yeah, I mean, okay, going through this whole thing, I have sort of like the. So we're now done with the the, the chapter. To be clear to everybody, I mean, is are you give you're giving me an opening to say these crit- criticisms? Yes. Should I do it? Should I? Yeah, do no. It I mean, now? we're no, we're done now. So now we're oh, we're right. done. Okay, great. Sorry, I'm like very out of it right now, and I hope that this episode isn't terrible. Um, yeah. So I have sort of the standard anarchist critiques, right? Which is like. Why do you think people need to be dominated? Uh, is the like if the proletariat is organized as the ruling class, who are they ruling? I guess I think we figured out that they're ruling themselves. Um, and the question then becomes like, is this really a democratic thing, or is it always going to be like the rule of the party over the people um, and become separate in a way that the bourgeois state is from the people from whom it ostensibly gets its power? Um, and I find that, you know, somewhat compelling as someone who's like, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Um, there's also the sort of left critique that I read in a very good article by Jasper Burns and Joshua Clover, which is basically to say that we cannot even consider the state as divorced from capital because they are inextricably linked. You know, capital is a critique of political economy political economy being politics and the economy right they cannot be divorced from one another so if you're recreating this thing as a socialist state 
um, it's still going to be wedded to a capitalist economy because that is the thing that created the state to begin with, like Lenin says. Um, and it's going to be very hard to achieve the kind of social transformation that Lenin is talking about when you have a state that is, you know, not just tasked with expropriating the bourgeoisie, but tasked with running, you know, an, a capitalist economy within the bounds of the nation state, because we are talking about socialism in one country here. We're writing, uh, Lenin is writing and thinking in a scenario where they have only ever had these small contained revolutions and it has never succeeded in generalizing. Um, so the state is basically, it's the best suited for accumulation, some form of, like he says, monopolistic state capitalism, which might have lots of things to recommend it, but at the end of the day is very unlikely to lead to anything resembling communism. Because it's still, you know, the law of value is still in operation. It's, it's just, it's got to develop the economy like, like the USSR did, you know, it's, it's under, it's driven by market imperatives still. Yeah, and I think it's an important consideration, all of everything you said, Jamie. I mean, I I somewhat, you know, I'm a bit more sympathetic to kind of what Lenin is arguing, but I think something that must be said is that I think, you know, I will say it does seem like there is a bit of a glancing over of kind of the details, but to be to be fair, I think he's just more kind of painting the broad strokes. You know, he didn't want to make very specific, concrete cases because, you know, kind of what we just said at the end of this chapter you can't really know until like how a lot of this is going to develop until you kind of try to do it. That being said, you know, I, I will push back on one sense that it, it, he does say that the way that the state would be organized is in such a way that the people who are being subsumed are the people who run the state. Like the, like, like the workers and the proletariat are those that are above the state in the way that he's kind of imagining it. Like if we go back to like a, specific quote you know it kind of says let me see here it says the subordination says no we want the social revolution people as they are now with people who cannot dispense with subordination control and form an accountants the subordination however must be to the armed guards of all the exploited and working people so he's saying that like the people who are the state officials will be below the basically like the proletariat but that being said you know it's you can just say that but how do you ensure that that actually comes about? Because I think I am a bit sympathetic to like the left calm analysis that the state is kind of a uh, manifestation of capitalist society. Or better it's an said, excrescence. Or better said, it's an excrescence of class or like, society. Or like not even excrescence, right? Because like that's how Lenin sees it. I think it, like right. it's generated by these class uh, class conflicts, but. I mean, the way that Jasper frames it is really like the state and capital, like one is not an excrescence of another. They're just like these conjoined twins or something. Right. So, yeah, I don't have like a solid <laughs> conclusion on that, but I feel like these are some good questions uh, to consider as we continue reading State and Revolution. And there's certainly questions that are going to come up again. Absolutely. And there are questions that we can pose to our esteemed panel yeah for sure who doesn't love a plenary panel at the end of something i certainly do you know at the end of the, the end of the day you've been to all sorts of talks and seminars at your little socialism conference everybody comes back together 
at the end. For the plenary panel. And everyone comes together in unity. And then you sing a song at the end. It's very fun. Very nice. And, and you know, hope for all of you are take away some very important parts in this important chapter of Stain Revolution. And until next time. Do the reading. Do the reading. Продолжает собой И сердцу тревожно в груди И Ленин такой молодой И юный октябрь